Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Degish America Presents. I am your host, Ben Harrell, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined us. Last episode, we discussed the second of the three most used fumigants in the United States by speaking to Pam Peckman about methyl bromide. Regulatory compliance aside, methyl bromide is a very efficacious fumigant that's no more difficult to apply than any of the others. This episode, we're going to discuss the last, but certainly not the least prevalent fumigant used in the United States, sulfurofluoride. I've invited Blake Buckner to join me on the podcast to discuss the use of sulfurofluoride in the United States. Blake is currently the business development manager at Dagish America and has several years experience in the fumigation industry. So everybody help me welcome Blake to the podcast. Blake, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm great, Ben. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for taking some time out of your busy schedule to help me discuss sulfuryl fluoride. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. So the first thing that I always ask everybody when they join me on a podcast is not everybody knows who you are or what you do. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of tell all the listeners a little bit about yourself and what role you play with uh, the company you work for. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm the currently the business development manager at Dagish. That's a new role for me, and I'm, I'm extremely excited about it. But uh, leading up to that, I've been with Dagish since the summer of 2001 in, in various roles. Uh, I started just as most others as a laborer to earn some extra cash in the summers, you know, working on the, on the hot roofs of tobacco warehouses in, Richmond, <laughs> yeah. in, in the middle of July and, and lugging cases of fumigant onto ships down in Norfolk, uh, in the middle of the night. So after a few years of that, as glamorous as it was, I slipped uh, into the golf industry and took a little detour for uh, for a number of years with a few brief stops at Dagish in between to, to help out during the peak season. But uh, in 2015, I returned to Dagish, briefly worked as a supervisor in the, in the Richmond office. And that's sort of where I really fell in love with the company and, and really the industry as a whole. And in 2018, I assumed the, the role of division manager of the Wilson, North Carolina division, overseeing a, a massive amount of fumigations and, and using a, a pretty wide variety of fumigants, really, on a diverse mix of commodities. So it was a, it was a wonderful learning experience where I grew exponentially as a fumigator. And then, you know, that, that role brings us up to now, where we sit now. So you're no stranger to the complicated workings of the fumigation industry. You've been around the block a few times then. That's good. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you're here to talk to us, uh, you know, with your level of experience in a wide variety of fumigants. I know you've come across and utilized uh, sulfurofluoride on a number of occasions. So I wanted to welcome you in to talk to us a little bit about SF or sulfurofluoride. And I mean, we'll just jump right in with this. I, I think one of the biggest questions that we get asked when it comes to fumigation and fumigants particularly is a lot of people want to know how do these fumigants actually work? And so if you could help kind of describe to us exactly how sulfurofluoride works, how it eliminates the pests that we're trying to control, that'd be great. Well, sulfurofluoride is, is an inorganic molecule. It's been used in the fumigation industry as, as far back as the late 50s to control dry wood termites. So it's, it's been around for quite a while. We started using it in commercial applications in the early 2000s, mostly as an alternative to, to methyl bromide, which was and, and still is in the process of being phased out uh, due to its ozone depleting characteristics. Its mode of action or how it controls the pest is through interfering with the glycolysis process of the pest which actually in turn prevents the insect from being able to create energy and in turn they perish. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it. 
Uh, that's exactly how I understand how it works. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that it took so long. I mean, we, you know, we've been using it since the late 50s to control drywood termites in primarily residential uh, environments, but it took all the way into the 2000s before they started really concentrating on utilizing it in commercial applications. So it's kind of interesting how how long it, in my personal opinion, it's kind of interesting how long it took for it to move into the commercial field. It really took the elimination or the phase out of methyl bromide to bring sulfurofluoride into that industry. And it's just kind of interesting that it wasn't done really very strongly prior to that. So I just think that's kind of interesting that it took that long to, for, for that to take place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my mind, it, it's amazing to me that it took, you know, 16 years for that. And at this stage, just like it was in the early 2000s, our hand is being forced more and more so every day that goes by really into into eliminating methyl bromide from our toolbox. Oh yeah, methyl bromide is almost completely phased out at this point. I mean, it's still used for just the tiniest bit of critical use, uh, and it's used in some quarantine and quarantine pre-shipment uh, fumigations, and that's pretty much it. I mean, there's very little methyl bromide being used in the United States now. Uh, you know, and really, to be honest with you, sulfuryl fluoride is a really good replacement for that. Uh, you know, it's not a cookie cutter replacement. There are things that methyl bromide did that sulfuryl fluoride can't but it's pretty good. You know, we, we still have a wide variety of fumigants in the industry that we can use to replace methyl bromide. So um, I definitely see it ramping up and moving forward at a faster pace. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. All right. So we know that sulfuryl fluoride was brought in as a quasi replacement for methyl bromide and for commodity fumigation. Uh, and we talked about some of the differences between sulfuryl fluoride and methyl bromide. But what are some of the advantages of using sulfuryl fluoride in our industry today? Well, for starters, SF is it's a broad spectrum fumigant, which means it's very effective on all life stages of pests, from the egg stage all the way through the ranks to, to the adults. It's also non-flammable, non-corrosive, so it, it can be used in areas with things like sensitive equipment and expensive electronics and, and things that we need to protect, for lack of a better way to put it. So another benefit and arguably the, the most useful benefit of, of SF is the flexibility. SF gives the fumigator the ability to adapt to several factors of the fumigation and still achieve the desired result or the end goal. For example, if you increase your exposure period or, or the length of time the, the fumigant is in the treated area, you can usually decrease the amount of SF needed, or on the other hand, you have a need to perform a shorter fumigation, let's say, and you can reduce the exposure period and typically increase the amount of fumigant and still get the, the desirable result. This comes in handy, like when we look at the critical role that temperature plays in, in SF fumigations. SF isn't necessarily bound by a rigid X, days by X concentration schedule. It's a three-factor equation, really. Uh, temperature, time, and concentration. I sort of think of it as, a, as an aggregate mortality, and you can change the multipliers to add up to the same sum, which is mortality of the, of the pest. In theory, increased duration, you can decrease the concentration, or you can decrease the duration and increase the concentration all while adjusting each of these factors to meet with the current temperature that exists in the space that you're going to fumigate. 
Right, yeah. And temperature is sometimes pretty difficult to control, especially when we start getting into some of these uh, geographical areas in the United States where we see a lot of swings due to seasons. You know, I'm a Midwest boy at heart. You know, I live in the Midwest and, you know, we can have one day that's 60 degrees and the very next day can be 30 degrees. If you don't like like the weather, just wait, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's and it's, it's like that where I live. So the ability to be able to adjust parameters on fumigation despite temperature fluctuations plays a big role for us you know especially when we're getting into like a raw commodity or raw agricultural commodity fumigations now i mean those temperature swings of those commodities in those in those internal spaces don't change quite that fast but they do in some cases and uh, it's nice to be able to have some flexibility when they do so all of these different fumigants take a different set of tools. I mean, of course, taping and sealing, for the most part, on all fumigations across the board, regardless of the fumigant, are going to remain the same. But all of the different fumigants do take some different tools in order to help you achieve success. What are some of the tools that you need to utilize to fumigate with sulfuryl fluoride? Yeah, well, right out of the gate, I like to get it on the table. For starters, safety is of the utmost importance. Sulfuryl fluoride works through inhalation. So the ability to monitor your breathing zones and make sure you are not being exposed to levels above the one part per million is is absolutely critical. And not only you, but any bystanders, but you cannot legally be exposed to SF levels above one part per million without proper respiratory protection. So, and if you do, and as we, we know now, you will need to go into areas that exceed one part per million. You'll need to wear a properly fitted SCBA, uh, self-contained breathing apparatus. And, and as all fumigators know, as I mentioned before, when initiating aeration, you'll most likely be exposed to those levels much, much higher than one part per million. Another tool you need is a device to measure the concentration of SF inside of the fumigated space. You'll need to take readings periodically and and feed those readings into the computer programs in order to make sure you're achieving the the target dosage. The key to a successful fumigation with SF is safety and precision. So data collection is critical. And as my friend Jim Smiley alluded to in in an earlier episode, the, the mantra has been drilled and drilled and drilled into my head as a fumigator, particularly here at Dagish. And, and that is if you aren't monitoring, you simply are not fumigating. Yeah, and, I could not agree more. And with the amazing tools, Ben, that we have as fumigators at our disposal currently, there just is simply no excuse not to monitor each fumigation early and, and often. And then there are some other things that, you know, I don't want to call them secondary because they're equally as important, but these come after safety and precision. There's, there's application lines, cylinder fittings, and, and things like that needed in order to apply the fumigant. And fans are needed to help disperse the, the SF through the fumigated space. And the, the manufacturers really have some, some very specific guidelines on the application equipment specs and, and the fan placement based on your cubic footages and, and application rates that you've dictated for, for the space that you're going to fumigate. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned one thing, and I, and I want to get a little bit more in depth on this myself because it's something that I, I think most people who use sulfuryl fluoride know this, uh, but people who haven't probably don't. You know, we talk a lot about 
these uh, precise techniques and measuring this stuff very exactly. And we mentioned uh, feeding this information, this monitoring information into a computer program. The manufacturers of sulfuryl fluoride, they actually utilize computer programs to basically plan the, the entirety of the fumigation uh, to make sure that you're achieving a very precise fumigation. And these computer programs are absolutely fantastic. They allow you to be able to estimate the amount of sulfuryl fluoride you're going to need for an initial dose. They're going to tell you uh, if you're feeding in the proper information, they're going to tell you if and when you may need to add additional fumigant to make sure that you're going to achieve control. And it allows you to change all these different parameters that we talked about, like if the temperature changes, like you mentioned in, in certain scenarios, or if you need to decrease or increase your exposure periods, or if you need to decrease or increase based on the type of pest, because all these different pests have different levels of sulfuryl fluoride that are required in order to achieve elimination, basically. And these computer programs, I, I mean, they're absolutely fantastic. I could not envision trying to fumigate with sulfuryl fluoride without using these computer programs because they literally take most of the guesswork out of the fumigation. It's amazing just exactly how scientific uh, fumigation has become, especially over the last 20 to 25 years, and quite especially over the last 10 years, with the advent of the use of these computer programs for sulfuryl fluoride. And it's it's just really interesting to me that we can utilize these and achieve this this massive level of success. You know, back 30 or 40 years ago, you know, it was pretty commonplace for people to just put a prescribed dose inside of, say, a grain bin, walk away from it, forget about it for several days and then come back and it's automatically aerated and monitoring wasn't done, clearance wasn't done. Uh, it was much looser restrictions back then. But I don't know how we killed anything. <laughs> well, I know, you know, and actually uh, this is off topic a little bit, but the interesting thing is, is a lot of the concerns with phosphine resistance are correlated directly with that method of fumigation that was done back 20, 30, 40 years ago and, and prior to that. But... Nowadays, we have this really scientific method of providing and performing these fumigations and monitoring them that really helps us become much more successful and to introduce a very prescribed dosage into these structures and still achieve the level of control that we want. And it's just amazing to me how far we've come in this industry in really what could be considered a, a pretty short amount of time. All right, so we talked about sulfuryl fluoride with use with commodities and, and post-harvest fumigation. We all know that it's been used since the late 50s now for residential fumigation for uh, wood-destroying organisms. But something that's relatively new, well, I say relatively new, it's been around for you know several years now, but it's, it's starting to catch on. But it's the use of sulfuryl fluoride for the control or elimination of bed bugs. You know, bed bugs have become a real hot topic over the last decade or so. And uh, we've seen this real massive uptick on using sulfuryl fluoride to fumigate for bed bugs. So do you agree that, do you think that that's a viable option? Absolutely. Let me just say it like this. Bed bug fumigations with SF is an enormous opportunity. The application rate needed to control the bed bugs is very low. And, and the exposure time is, it's relatively short. So it's, it's a very viable option. Because SF doesn't generate any heat, the, the considerations for heat treatments don't apply. You don't have to worry about heat sensitive items in the structure, which can be a detractor for treating 
bed bugs using heat treatments. And because SF works so well against bed bugs and has such a penetrative quality, if done correctly, you'll get the fumigated site 100% bed bug free almost every time with a single application. Now, with that being said, SF doesn't have any residual quality. So once the facility has been cleared, it can obviously become reinfested without the residual. So any fumigation should be uh, should be followed up with some preventative measures and preventative controls to not reintroduce the bed bugs. Yeah, that's great. I've actually been on several bed bug fumigations myself, and it's pretty amazing how well sulfurofluoride works in those environments. I mean, anybody who's ever done any kind of pest control inside residential structures knows that oftentimes you run into, let's just say, less than ideal situations um, (laughs) where chemical control and heat treatments are going to be very challenging. So to have this tool in your toolbox for bed bug elimination is very important. And the wonderful thing about this is is a lot of the tools and equipment are the same. So if you're already doing sulfurofluoride fumigations for commodity or post-harvest, or even more if you're doing fumigations in the residential market already for wood-destroying organisms, you already own most of the equipment that's necessary in order to treat these facilities for bed bugs as well. And the other interesting thing that I want to mention too is this isn't always possible, of course. It depends on the the structural integrity of the fumigated space, of course. But (laughs) in a lot of uh, scenarios, you don't have to tarp the structure. And uh, those residential fumigators out there know exactly what I'm talking about. Typically, when you're fumigating for wood-destroying organisms in a residential market, you're going to tarp or cover the entirety of the fumigated space, whether it's a house or an apartment building, whatever the case is. You have to tarp it because the sulfurofluoride has to get down into the proper areas to control the wood-destroying organisms like dry wood termites, powder post beetles. Bed bugs don't live in the same areas within a structure. So a lot of times... You can get by with just doing uh, what we call a tape and seal on a home or a structure, and you can uh, treat for bed bugs in that fashion rather than having to go through all of the complexity of putting a tarp over it. Now, again, like I said, that's not every single uh, structure. Some of them are going to leak. If you do that, you may have to tarp them anyway. But uh, it's nice to know that you have that as an option specifically for bed bug fumigations. Uh, with sulfurofluoride. Sure, it's it's a huge bonus from a bed bug perspective when you can get by with a tape and seal. That's, oh yeah, no yeah. All right, so you know we talked a little bit about SF. I mean, it's a very complicated fumigant. I mean, we could spend hours and hours talking about sulfurofluoride, and I'm sure you and I both could trade stories <laughs> back and forth. We've both we've both been in the industry for several years now, and and use this product a lot. But I think this is probably a pretty good introduction to the product. And so I always uh, like to end these conversations by asking people that I'm talking to, you know, what advice would they give a new fumigator just starting out in the industry? So picture what that person would look like. Somebody who, you know, is maybe six months into the job, a year into the job, or maybe it's their first day. Maybe they're not even a licensed fumigator yet, but they have that as a goal in mind. What kind of advice would you give that person that's just starting out? Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll sense a common theme here, but slow and steady wins the race every time. I've been in the fumigation industry for a while now, and I've seen my share of accidents and also my share of of near misses. And and every time it's been due to someone on the job site getting in a hurry or trying to cut corners. I I can't emphasize enough. 
you need to take your time and plan out your fumigation fully before you ever introduce one gram, one ounce uh, of fumigant and follow the label. Fumigants are completely safe to use as long as the labels are followed. Don't try to cut corners. There's a lot of science behind these labels and they lay out exactly what to do during the fumigation process. If you take your time, plan well, and, and follow the labels, you're going to significantly increase your safety and your success, which I think those two things are really synonymous. And Absolutely. At the, at the, yeah, you know, at the surface level, the goal is to control pests, but the ultimate goal is to do so safely. The, the number one goal of every fumigator should not be, uh, I'm the best fumigator in the company, or I'm the fastest person at sealing roof vents. Those are, those are great goals, don't get me wrong, but the, the chief goal, number one goal should be that in your career as a fumigator, you should strive every day to never introduce harm to yourself, to others, or the environment. Bottom line. Absolutely. Don't, don't get me wrong, everything else is very important you know, uh, profit and efficiency and things like that are very important, but they're definitely secondary to that mantra. And secondly, uh, uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, fumigants are extremely dangerous and they're extremely complex in, in a lot of cases. So if, if you have questions or you feel that you're ill-prepared to handle any aspect of a fumigation, don't take that chance. Ask the question. And I guess finally, if it sort of correlates back to the first thing, if you see another person on site, whether it's a fellow employee or a, a bystander, anyone really d doing something unsafe that, that could pose a risk to themselves or others, take action, you know, do something, say something. I get a little passionate about it, Ben, but it really could mean the difference between life and death. And I guess finally, you know, you need to document everything. It sort of goes back to the readings and the concentration monitoring. I like to say that if you don't document it, it didn't happen. Sort of like if if you don't monitor, you're not fumigating. You'd be surprised how many times a paper trail can can really save your your bacon in some sticky situations. Oh yeah, absolutely yeah. And I like the fact that you talked about obviously safety is paramount, and I really like the fact that you talked about planning well. Um, one thing that I like to always suggest to folks. Uh, when I'm talking about planning for a fumigation is you want to plan the fumigation backwards. And what I mean by that is, in my opinion, you want to plan the fumigation with aeration in mind. So for fan placement, for tape and seal, for um, equipment placement, for which doors you're going to open. You want to know which exhaust fans to turn on. So you, you want to plan with the aeration in mind and then work your way backwards because it doesn't do you any good if you fumigate a structure and then when it comes time to aerate, it takes you three times longer to aerate than it should because you didn't plan with that aeration in mind. You always want to think about the aeration first and then plan backward from that. Sure. Once you introduce that fumigant, you own that fumigant. That's the way I like to look at it. You, you own responsibility of that fumigant. And when it comes time to aerate it, you still are responsible and own that fumigant and, and where it goes. So you need to know where it's going and at what concentration it's at. You own that molecule until the concentration of that molecule is deemed safe. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, that's all I had for you, Blake. Listen, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today. And that's it. Absolutely, Ben. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks. I want to thank Blake Buckner for helping me discuss sulfurofluoride and the science behind the molecule. I like to talk about just how technical and innovative our industry is, 
and it's great to be able to give people a peek into the science behind the fumigant. Now that we've discussed the three most used fumigants in the U.S. market, next episode we'll focus on another sometimes daunting and complicated part of the fumigation industry, transporting hazardous materials. We have a really terrific guest lined up for the next episode, and I guarantee he'll shed some light onto any and all of your potential transportation woes when it comes to fumigants. In the meantime, if you have any questions about this episode's topic or any other questions relating to the industry, please make sure to reach out to us. You can find us at degishamerica.com or on all of the main social media outlets. And you can also feel free to email us at info at And so, until next time, I'm Ben Harl, and I hope you have a safe and terrific day.